Hi everybody and welcome to Southern Deadly Yarns. I'm Elijah from Neparendi and this is... Eve from Onkaparinga Libraries. Southern Deadly Yarns is a series of virtual author events highlighting the incredible work of First Nations authors. Join us as we examine topics including truth-telling, recognition and what makes a good yarn. And we are broadcasting from the lands of the Ghana people here in Adelaide, so thank you for the Ghana people for the warm, continuing hospitality. For more on Southern Deadly Yarns, check out onkaparingacity.com. Hello everybody and welcome back to Southern Deadly Yarns. My name's Eve from Onkaparinga Libraries and this is Elijah from Neparendi Aboriginal Forum. Um, and we are very excited today to be joined by Thomas Mayer, who is a Torres Strait Islander man living in Darwin, as he's just said, um, and is a big advocate for the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which he has now written two gorgeous books about. So, hey, Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Eve. It's a pleasure to be here, coming to you from Marikia country. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And it's good to be, yeah, on Ghana country, although, as Eve said, it's a little bit cold, but... We would like to the Ghana people, their ongoing spiritual connection to country, um, their elders past, present and future, and they're, they're maintaining advocacy for being a strong voice to, to maintain and look after country. So, yeah, it's important that we acknowledge that. We also ask that, you know, if people online want to give us a bit of a shout out as to whose country you're on and where you're from, that'd be great too. And, yeah, feel free to, I guess, pose a few questions if people in... The audience want to answer that too that that'll be great essentially we'd really like to have you know that safe place where, where people can bounce ideas off one another and different questions and, and yeah have that sort of safe space online so yeah thank you for, for those that are joining us tonight so thomas can you set the scene for us and give anybody who's watching who might be unaware just coming to learn about the Uluru statement now um can you give us a bit of a background on the Uluru statement from the heart and how it came to be yeah i can do that um I'll do this uh, briefly, though it, the Uluru Statement has a, a long history because it is built from the history of First Nations struggle. And, of course, our struggle began, you know, with the coming of uh, the arrival of Captain Cook and the false declaration of Terra Nullius. And it's always important to note that just before he arrived or, or even for a while after he arrived, our people, um, the First Nations of this uh, continent and adjacent islands, had a, had a peaceful way of life, you know, and, and knew how to live with the land in a way that, uh, um, you know, we were able to live with abundance. And when I say peaceful, I say that with um, not only from my own knowledge as a Torres Strait Islander connected to my culture, but also how experts describe it as a peaceful culture, because uh, we know that from the development of so many different First Nations languages, and I say different as in, um, you know, very different from each other, unique First Nations languages, hundreds of them, that, uh, that we weren't a conquering people, um, that we did have a peaceful way of life. We, had, uh, we were the masters of dispute resolution uh, in many ways. And, um, you know, we were an advanced society. It's always the place that you've got to begin. Colonisation, of course, brought all sorts of destruction. And uh, the Uluru Statement is, you know, is, is a part of that struggle for our people um, to be treated fairly, um, to be heard, uh, and it's, it's a culmination of many statements and petitions over the years. The, uh, we could talk about the Yakala Bark petitions or even a petition in the 30s uh, to the Queen, um, Fred Maynard, the leader of the first Aboriginal organisation. The 1930s also the, the petition done by William Cooper. Um, the Yakala Bark petitions in 1963. The Larrakia petition to the, to the 
um, to the Queen in 1972, um, the Barunga Statement in 1988, um, the Valley Statement in the early 90s. You know, the Uluru Statement is a culmination of all of that struggle, um, each of those petitions and statements, and the lessons learnt from uh, all the things that we've tried and have, have failed to, uh, to move uh, the, the decision making. So that's, that's the, the longer background behind the Uluru Statement and more temp, uh, contemporarily, 13 regional dialogues. You know, Elijah acknowledged was uh, one of the guys involved in that. And those 13 dialogues had three days of debate and passionate discussion. Um, elected delegates such as Elijah and myself and more than 250 others uh, we came together in the heart of the country and we made the Uluru Statement uh, based on that history and based on what we know we can achieve. Just lastly on, on what the Uluru Statement is, one of the lessons from those previous petitions and statements is that every time we've had a petition or statement before these um, aspirational moments, they've been ignored by the powers that be. And this one is written to the Australian people and therefore it's up to the Australian people to respond, not those in Parliament. I wouldn't go too long there, Eve. And Elijah? No, no, but it's a very important point that, you know, it is to the people of Australia. It's not to the whims of whatever government of the day may be around, but it's actually to the people of this country. And I, I think that's vital. And I think that's, you know, another reason why it needs to go to them. Yeah, and a referendum. That's right. So, Thomas, can you um, recite the statement for us? Yeah, I can do that. And then I'll talk a bit about what it calls for you know, and how it can be put to the Australian people. And I've got to say, you know, I mean, Elijah, you, I don't know if you, oh, you certainly remember, because it was just such an incredible moment, wasn't it, that, um, you know, when the Uluru Statement was read for the first time by Professor Megan Davis, uh, an Aboriginal woman, Cobble uh, Cobble First Nation and, uh, and a public law expert, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop in the room, right? And just the, okay. the expectation, the tension, um, it, was a, it was a really powerful moment. And I hope you'll feel this when... I recite the statement. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it on our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation according to the common law from time immemorial and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or mother nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil or better of sovereignty it has never been ceded or extinguished, and it coexists with the sovereignty of the crown. How could it be otherwise that a people's possessed the land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alien from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. 
These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional change to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our own destiny, our children will flourish, they will walk in two worlds, and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarada is a culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. So that's the Uluru Statement. So it calls for um, a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament and a Makarata Commission to supervise truth-telling and agreement-making. The voice is the priority because the voice is, is so important to truth-telling. Without political power, the truth cannot be used to get the outcomes that our people need. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a really, I think, a simple uh, strategic thing that you would establish a representative body um, that is strong and uh, irremovable um, before uh, you're going to get any decent outcomes in negotiating with uh, an entity as powerful as, you know, the government of Australia. How it would be powerful enough to do that is the constitutional part. I mentioned the, uh, the AAPA, I think, earlier when I was running through the history of our struggle. Uh, that was the first all Aboriginal political organisation, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association. Um, it, like many others that uh, came after it, um, all the way through to ATSIC, were destroyed by hostile government. So the constitution is um, vital to protecting this representative body, this voice to parliament uh, from hostile governments and their ability to silence us. The constitution can only be changed and a voice can only be enshrined in it through a referendum. And so that's the mechanism for the Australian people to answer the invitation in the Uluru Statement. With that, um, with a successful referendum, that empowers the voice greatly uh, because it's a mandate of the Australian people that Indigenous people should be heard on matters that affect them. So that's it in a nutshell what it calls for. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe just reflecting a moment as well. With, with ATSIC, of course, it was quite a body that sort of mirrored what a great democracy should be like. It was a highly, you know, it functioned well because a lot of people voted and you'd vote for your regional councils and, and they'd have oversight. And sometimes we forget the importance that ATSIC had and yeah. the influence that it had on Aboriginal people. And, and that model is, is yet to be superseded. And, and again, yeah, that was, you know, in the stroke of the pen, that act is taken away. So. Yeah, it's a really good point, Elijah. The um, what I think uh, ultimately what you're talking about there is accountability of our leaders um, to our own people, right? Um, and that's what we don't have right now um, because any representative body with that sort of grassroots structure really and, uh, and leaders that are able to be held accountable um, has been silenced. The 
it's important to note when we talk about ATSIC, some might remember it had a lot of problems before it was destroyed. But just to point out that um, that was that was by design in some ways, not not the problems, but how those problems were amplified and not dealt with um, appropriately by by government. They used those problems um, to soften the Australian public um, and then destroy it. And so that's an important thing to note about what happened to ATSIC. Um, and we've got to do better. Yeah, Vanstone was the minister at the time, and Amanda Vanstone admits that it was wrong to have repealed the legislation that established ATSIC, uh, because in the absence of that sort of strong voice um, with accountable leaders that represent their people unapologetically, because that's who they're accountable to, um, we saw the Northern Territory intervention. You know, we saw hundreds of millions of dollars cut um, from services to Indigenous communities. You know, we saw all of these terrible things happen, taking us back you know, decades, really, as far as Indigenous advancement goes. So, you know, it's an important thing for all Australians to establish such a strong voice. So we're here in Aldinka Library this evening, Thomas. You can't see it, but the beautiful library is behind us. Um, and you were here in person in February 2020, which I think was our last major event before COVID really hit. We had 140 people here. They were all passionately asking for voice, treaty and truth. But that was 18 months ago. So where does the statement stand now? And did COVID kind of have an effect on that? Yeah, it's been really interesting, actually. I mean, I loved um, coming to the library there, Aldinga Library. Um, such a great event. And it was really good to catch up with you, Elijah, and spend some time with you, mate. But uh, since then, um, things have just continued to grow. I think, uh, I think the 140 people that turned up there must have gone back and, and taken some action. Um, and as we said to them, you know, does you know even a small what what feels like it is a small action, you know, adds up. You know, these things, as I say, from little things, big things grow. Um, the song Paul Kelly song about the Gurindji walk off. Um, and so we've seen from 2017 when Elijah and I were at Uluru um, straight away um, after Uluru, Elijah um, almost immediately we did some polling to show how many people would support a referendum to enshrine a voice. And the numbers were sitting at around 50% back then. You know, a lot of people hadn't heard of the Uluru Statement. Um, there was a lot of misinformation out there, as, you know, including what Barnaby Joyce was saying about a third chamber of parliament, which he has since apologised about. He, he admits he got that wrong. But over the, the four years to, um, to the last time we did polling earlier this year, that number has grown by 20%. And there's a strong correlation between the numbers of people that say they will vote yes in a referendum to enshrine a voice and the numbers of people that say they've heard of the Uluru Statement. So those numbers have grown together by 20%. 20%. And so that tells us that if that 140 people, um, you know, that was at Aldinga Library went out there and told people about it, just people learning about the Uluru Statement moves, you know, the numbers of people that would say they'd vote yes and therefore the confidence that we can have that we're going to win. Um, and that's a really important thing to move politicians that they, you know, that they think they can win, um, you know, what they put up to the Australian people. So, yeah, really important stuff that you guys get out there and spread the word about the Uluru Statement. Yeah, yeah, and particularly too because there, there is a few sort of marginal seats that are just sort of hanging in there. So, yeah, it doesn't take much to apply a bit of political pressure sometimes and, if it's applied in the right area, then it might have a great outcome. Yeah, spot on, Elijah. You know, like um, uh, 
don't hesitate to write to politicians and, you know, like I'm probably jumping the gun here about what people can do, guys, sorry, but um, but it's really important that the to understand that to get to a referendum, um, we do need to convince the politicians. Um, in our political system, uh, there has to be a referendum bill passed in Parliament before the question goes to the people. So, you know, don't hesitate to write to politicians. Um, even better, organise a delegation of a few of you. Um, you know, book a meeting with your local federal member and go and knock on their door and say, hey, this is what we want you to do and it matters at the ballot box. Some great insight. That's, that's probably the number one question we get in a lot of these Southern Deadly Yarns is people commenting that they want to help. What can I do? What can I do? I want to help. I have time. I have resources, but where do I put them? So, yeah, that's some great advice. Thanks, Thomas. Yeah, like um, that correlation is really important. So I hope that helps you understand that what can you do if there's anyone in your circle of influence, whether it's your family, your sporting club, your book club, um, your local library, you know, whatever. Um, it's important that you spread the word of the Uluru Statement because it moves people. Yeah, and I love to tell people that after you were here at Aldinga um, last year, ever since in the Aldinga Township here, there's a pizza place called The Shack and they've had the Uluru Statement in their window and it makes me so happy every time I go. But, yeah, it's great. It's such a simple way to spread the word. And we yep. have seen a lot, a lot of businesses, a lot of people come on board and publicly endorse it, of course. Mm. Which is Yeah, yeah. From across the political spectrum, you know, you've got big corporations, you've got militant unions, you've got, um, you know, in the middle, you've got councils and libraries and small businesses, uh, you know, and that tells us that we can win this in some ways, you know, because you can't, you know, I come from the union movement and, uh, you know, quite a militant union, the maritime union, I was a wharfie uh, for many years, but we can't rest in our little political bubble, right, our ideological bubble. We've got to capture the great swathe of the middle and, and that's how we can achieve this. Yeah, yeah. And, and even just to reflect, we have had a few councils um, openly acknowledge and, and endorse this, this statement from the heart. For other councils that might be a bit hesitant, is, is there any sort of message that you'd have for them? Well, firstly, if there's any council or if you um, can influence a council at all um, that hasn't endorsed it yet, please um, please get working on that. Uh, it's extremely important because, uh, you know, I think it's a great way to, to spread the word and to help us win this. Um, you know, if you know a councillor, you know, get in their ear, try and think about the politics, map the joint, you know, understand uh, what councillors would be favourable, um, try and get them to put a motion up, um, you know, um, assist them to put pressure on councillors, uh, you know, aldermen or whatever they call them that haven't, um, and, and run a bit of a campaign to move your local council to, to endorse it. For those that do already endorse it, the next bit of work that I'd love for you to do, um, if you want to do something, is then convince them um, about uh, what actions they can take um, more than endorsing it. I've seen some great stuff from councils. I've seen um, I think it's Randwick Council in Sydney um, on bus stops around the place. They've got big Uluru Statement logos, you know, and um, we support the Uluru Statement signs. Uh, you know, you just can't miss it when, you, when you're getting around the city. Um, you can't miss these signs. So anything like that is really, is a really great um, thing to um, get a council to put resources and time into. Um, forums, you know, uh, similar to this, um, 
you know, mailbox, uh, you know, mail outs, the council, you know, just informing people. Uh, there's many different things that councils can do and have the budget to do, I think, um, and have an obligation to do as well um, with a great opportunity to spread the word. Yeah, to create a fair and just society. Yeah. So I'm going to be a librarian here and bring it back to the books. <laughs> um, your first book is this beautiful Finding the Heart of the Nation, um, published by Hardy Grant, who we're always big fans of their book. They really seem to publish some of the best ones. Um, and it features 20 stories and perspectives of people who were signatories of the statement or who support it, are advocates for it. Um, was there one in particular story that stood out to you or a few? I think the final story in the book, uh, I, and I purposely uh, kept that interview for last and, and, and put it last in the book just because of the, it, it's, the, the guy is Sammy Wilson. Um, and his real name is Chama uh, um, Uluru. Um, so he is Uluru. And I think the book explains a bit about how he is Uluru. But briefly, uh, for the listeners here, he is the grandson of Paddy Uluru. And Paddy Uluru uh, is, the, is the traditional owner um, who, uh, I can't remember what it was exactly, the 60s perhaps, travelled back to Uluru uh, and and started the work to to reclaim the place um, for his people. Uh, Sammy Uluru, um, you know, took me to Uluru and showed me some sacred sites and, and told me why the Uluru name is gifted to the Uluru statement. Um, and he basically explains that it's because um, his family want the power uh, of Uluru, that place, to um, to empower the campaign really. Um, and, and the reason why, practically, is that his people at Mutajulu in the community there that wore the brunt of the Northern Territory intervention, they don't want to be standing alone without a strong representative body to support them if an in, uh, something like the intervention ever happens again. Um, to remind people what happened at the intervention, um, just one example of um, the absolute disgrace that it was, was that the Australian government basically turned... Um, the Australian Army against its own people in the most vulnerable communities um, in the country. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that, uh, um, you know, is a real shame on us um, and we need to make sure that it doesn't happen again and the voice is one of those ways. But there's so many great interviews in there. You know, I mean, I loved, I loved all of them. Uh, you know, Teela Reid, who some people have met, um, uh, is in there, uh, you know, a very uh, great advocate for the Uluru Statement, young lawyer. Uh, Elverina Johnson from Yarrabah, you know, a place that, uh, you know, has a great history in uh, First Nations activism and, you know, is, is doing a lot of work, again, that little community, tiny little community near Cairns. Yeah, each of those interviews are special in their own way. The, the thing I'll, I'll just say also, Eve, is, um, is that, I was worried after doing 20 interviews that these, these, you know, what came out of those interviews would be too similar to each other, you know, because the publisher said, Hardy Grant said, be happy if you can do nine interviews, Thomas, because, you know, it's difficult. You've never done it before. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's hard because, you know, people fall through or whatever, you know, when you're trying to line them up and it's a lot to write. Um, and then I went out there and did 20 and it was like, I was worried that they were going to be too similar. But uh, throughout this book, uh, everybody has a unique story about uh, colonialism, 
about survival, about, um, you know, joy and hope. Uh, there's just so much uh, different experiences across this great land um, that it's, you know, really something that um, when it comes together in support of the Uluru Statement, I think it's really powerful. Yeah, it's a gorgeous book. There's um, Sammy Wilson, who you're talking about. You, might, you should be so proud. How, how did that come about? Did Heidi Grant approach you to write it? Did you have the idea for a while? or? I was travelling around with the Uluru Statement, uh, the, the original canvas, uh, because um, I felt in the political inertia at the time that uh, I was trying to find what I could do to support the campaign in the best possible way. And... So when I first saw the canvas at Gama, and I talk about this in the book, I asked, uh, you know, Arnie Pat Anderson and Marcia Langton if they thought it would be a good idea for me to take it around. And the union, you know, I was in a unique uh, position because there was no money for the campaign, zero. Um, and, uh, and so Arnie Pat Anderson went and met with my union um, and my union said, we'll second Thomas to the movement. And so uh, pretty much, uh, you know, uh, filled in my position as the official in the Northern Territory and off I went um, with the union support. They paid for my travel and accommodation. And it was on the road after about 12 months that I realised I had um, a great story to tell myself, but um, that there were these wonderful voices of people that I'd met along the way uh, that I thought um, I could help, uh, you know. I thought if people heard them, if people heard these voices, then they would support the Uluru Statement. I rang up Marcia Langton and I said, I've got this idea because she just did the book Welcome to Country. And, um, and she said, yeah, great idea. I'll hook you up with the publisher that did my book. And, uh, and then I met with them and away I went. Um, and then, of course, the children's book followed, the children's version a little while later. What inspired that to kind of tell the story again but for a different audience? Yeah, so... One of the things I experienced, uh, well, firstly, as a father, uh, I experienced how my children, my young children, loved learning about Larrakia culture, you know, the seasons, um, you know, language. And whenever they learned something new, they'd come home and they'd excitedly tell us, you know, my wife and I about the, you know, what they'd learned. And so uh, there was that. And combined with when I was on the road with the Uluru Statement, um, I had it up in public in Brisbane once, and it was early in the campaign, really. It was in 2018. And this, uh, you know, about nine-year-old boy um, was walking past with his entire family, and he pulls them up, and he drags them over to the Uluru Statement, and he says, that's the Uluru Statement from the heart. And so what I learned from these experiences is that kids teach the adults in their life, you know, about about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, because without the prejudice that we've been taught, you know, growing up um, with their innocence, you know, they see the world as it should be. And they see this, um, they see our culture as something to be proud of. Um, and they think that, of course, First Nations voices, you know, should be included in the centre of everything. And, and that's what they teach us then. So that's why I wrote the children's book. Yeah, definitely a good way. Definitely a good way. I've, I've heard a, a number of people trying to reach people and it just doesn't work. But then if you reach their kids, then, you know, ma it, it magically kind of tends to happen. Yeah. Oh, it's been fantastic, Elijah. You know, like it really, you know, really uh, hits me in the heart, you know, when I, when I see uh, teachers and libraries even, you know, like um, doing things with the book, 
uh, finding our heart. And, uh, you know, it's just a really special feeling. And as a campaigner as well, you know, it's like, oh, how good is this? You know, like the word's getting out there and, um, and people are doing the work. And we, and we do have a sneaky suspicion that there might be more on the way. Yeah, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I've got two more books coming out. I've got the bug now. Um, I, I really enjoy writing. It's something that, uh, yeah, has really uh, helped ground myself as well, you know, and, and learned so much about myself uh, and my past. Um, and I say that because one of the books that I've got coming out is called Dear Son. Uh, that comes out on the 1st of September. And Dear Son is, is about uh, fatherhood. Uh, from a First Nations perspective, it is fathers and sons writing to their fathers and sons in letters, you know, through through letters in, in the epistolary form. And uh, so there's 12 guys that um, joined me. Uh, the book starts with a letter to my own son that I wrote, um, about 4,000 words. And, uh, you know, I, and then um, 12 other uh, contributors wrote letters to their sons or fathers. And then I conclude the book with a letter to my own father, um, a very short letter to my own father. And uh, we write about life and, you know, love and, uh, you know, struggle. Uh, we try and um, teach our sons about, uh, from, you know, based on our own mistakes, about toxic masculinity, um, misogyny, um, you know, coercive control and what that is, and, um, and really try to teach our sons to be better men. But, but it is also about, about celebrating uh, who we are as Indigenous men, something I think that is overdue. In many ways, it's a response to um, the Northern Territory intervention and the way that um, Indigenous men were demonised, you know, based on a fabrication um, that was in the 730 report, was the catalyst um, for that, uh, you know, a deep overreaction. Um, there was um, the cartoon in The Australian in 2015, I think it was, or 16, um, Bill Leak cartoon with a, you know an Indigenous man, obviously Aboriginal man, facing a police officer who is holding an Aboriginal boy by the scruff of the neck, and basically um, you know paints the Indigenous man as indifferent to his own son, um, not even knowing his name. So, so the book's a response to that sort of stereotype. Um, you know, I was taught in in school that I was um, that my forefathers um, were savages and uh, not intelligent enough to have any science or anything like that. You know, whereas non-Indigenous, you know, kids in my class were taught that their forefathers were explorers and scientists and inventors and all these wonderful things. This book is an overdue response to that and, uh, and it defiantly celebrates Indigenous um, fatherhood, I think, and, and, uh, and who we are. Uh, the other one, sorry. The other one is uh, coming out in late August. Um, so they're coming out about the same time. It is a um, children's book again. For older children and finding our heart or it could be for that age as well but um it is a a book that i co-author with rosie smiler rosie smiler is the is a granddaughter of vincent lingari um vincent lingari for those that don't know was a leader of the wave hill walk-off um a gurindji man um it was uh when uh, around 200 aboriginal stock workers and domestic workers uh, and their families walked off Wayfield Station in protest that they were only being paid in um, meagre rations. It was basically slavery. Um, and that became a, a, a strike um, for, land right, for land rights, ultimately, at the end of the day. That children's book uh, covers that history. It begins before colonisation, actually, um, as I did at the beginning of this talk. 
and it doesn't conclude with, um, uh, you know, that celebrated moment where the Gurindji people succeeded in winning some land back and uh, the Prime Minister of the time, Gough Whitlam, um, you know, fam famous uh, uh, photo of him symbolically um, pouring some soil back into Vincent Lingari's hand and, and um, you know, indicating that return of land. It actually goes beyond that moment, this book, um, to, to say the truth about what happened after that moment in that while um, Gurindji people, along with many other Aboriginal people, um, had some land returned to them, uh, in the absence of a voice, the absence of the ability to influence um, the, the laws and policies and regulations um, that controlled how they lived on their land, what Vincent dreamed of, which was to live on their land their way, um, wasn't fully realised. And it talks about the Uluru Statement then in, in its conclusion. I've given it away, haven't I? A good story, though. It's okay, we'll still read it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great story. And maybe just to reflect on on some of that oppressive nature and, and yourself, you're on Larrakia country, you're in the Northern Territory. It's, you know, the, the last I heard that, you know, in juvenile detention, it was just like hundred percent Aboriginal kids. It was just like that the system wouldn't be around if it wasn't even for Aboriginal people. And that's that, I guess, a yes, good example um, of how that oppression works. It's a very good point, Elijah. It's one of the reasons why I, I believe in a First Nations voice so much. The incarceration, you're correct, uh, uh, most of the time it's it's close to 100%, if not 100%, Indigenous youth that are in, in, in detention, incarcerated here. You know, some as young as 10. Um, you know, that's a law that needs to change. We need to raise the age there. But that's, like the Uluru Statement says, that's not because we're an innately criminal people. We're not born with greater criminal... Um, intent um, than any other human beings. Uh, there must be a structural systemic issue here. Um, and if you don't believe that there's a structural systemic issue, then you've got to be racist because, you know, as I said, we're not different from other human beings. And the only way that we change the, the justice system and, and, those, um, and the way that we're dealt with in the justice system and the way that families are dealt with to break these cycles um, is to establish the political power to to get those laws and policies right. Yeah, yeah, to include us in the writing of these things. You know, I don't exactly. know of many acts of legislation that have been written by Aboriginal people. And quite often people talk about, you know, you know, it's, it's how does that saying go? Don't do it about us without us or something like that. It's just... You know, if you're going to write these things that impact on Aboriginal people, then really we need a seat at the table or otherwise we'll see this kind of thing again and again and again. And you did mention the Wave Hill and the Gurindji walk-off. Um, and having a union background, what's, what's some of the greatest sort of Aboriginal activism that you like to reflect on just for when, I don't know, those times are dark and you think, well, you know, how do we get through this? Yeah. Uh, great question, Elijah. I love that. Um, the well, the the Gurindji Wave Wavehill walk-off went for nine years before they succeeded. So, I mean, um, that's that's a great inspiration. Just the um, uh, you know the staunchness of of those uh, workers and and people that um, stood their ground all that time. And the you know the the, the cattle uh, the cattlemen offered them a pay rise to get them back to work. You know all those tactics to try and break uh, the strike and um, they didn't budge. But the, um, 
your question, um, the, the Gurindji people walked off after um, quite a few other walk-offs, walk-offs from cattle stations. And so, you know, I guess partly a great inspiration is, is the, the courage that they had to do that again uh, after failing, uh, you know, so many times. Um, but also the courage uh, in the face of the massacres that had happened, you know, not, not, not that long before um, these walk-offs. Um, at Newcastle Waters nearby, there was a walk-off. And there was actually a, a partially successful walk-off well before the Gurindji Wayville walk-off, which was the Pilbara strike. Um, I think it was 50 years ago, just recently, the Pilbara strike um, happened. And uh, there's, a, there's a couple others that I'll mention. There was the Palm Island strike. There was a, there was a strike in Palm Island that was ultimately broken uh, when uh, the police uh, went en masse uh, to that small island, Palm Island, and, um, and forcibly exiled um, uh, some of the men that were the leaders of that strike. Um, and they never, you know, just torn from their families and didn't see them for many, many years after that. And the other one is the Kwandamuka strike on um, Stradbroke Island. At a, an asylum, there were Indigenous workers and they went on strike and achieved, uh, you know, equal wages, actually, they reckon they succeeded. That was in the 1940s. Yeah, so, so some great inspirational struggle. And then as a unionist, I'm most proud in that, each of these uh, actions um, had union uh, union supporting them. Uh, my own union uh, supported um, the Pilbara strike by refusing to take uh, um, to sail on ships with wool, you know, to um, take wool away from the Pilbara, uh, move that cargo. Uh, the Nunkumbar dispute is another one in the Kimberleys. Anyway, I'm, I'm going on a bit, but there's so much to be proud of. The Gurindji strike. Um, Wolfies chipped in and regularly took supplies down to the Gurindji strikers. Yeah. It's so good to hear you tell those stories, Thomas. And it's so good to see how much success you've had with your books. Um, something that we talk about a bit on the yarns and just in general is um, who has the right to tell Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's stories? And as a non-Indigenous person who wants to help, I think about it a lot, kind of um, walking that line between using your privilege for good, but I don't want to drown out the voices that matter, you know? So um, what what do you think about that? Who Who is it, is it, do you use your white privilege to kind of get to the other white people who are more likely, unfortunately, to sometimes trust a non-Indigenous voice? Or do you, you know, take a step back and give up the stage? What, what do you think about that kind of dilemma? I think it's a very difficult question to answer. I don't. I think the line is a bit blurred, you know, as in um, what is best. I think, well, firstly and foremost, I think the best people to tell um, Indigenous stories are Indigenous people ourselves. Absolutely certain of that. Um, you know, First Nations voices should be telling our own stories. Um, the reason why I say um, it's not so clear-cut is that I think um, some, uh, some great work has been done um, to advance, uh, you know, um, our ability to tell stories and our, our and our rights. You know, I think there's some great books out there. Mark McKenna's book, you know, which tells the story actually somewhat of what I mentioned earlier, Sammy Wilson's grandfather's story. Um, you know, I think that's uh, an important book and an important story that an non-Indigenous person has, um, you know, has brought to light. So, but uh, there needs to be more... Uh, support and resources put into promoting or, or and educating or uh, and empowering Indigenous writers um, because we are the best to tell our own stories. Definitely, definitely. 
yeah yeah it, and yeah even those access to resources good good libraries historical records some, sometimes they're not always open to people unless they're you know studying a post honorary doctorate or something and it's hard to just get in these places to have a look at these texts but um i was reflecting today about the power of story as well and i was at woodcroft college and hello to anybody from woodcroft college if you're tuning in and 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 really that that power of story and and how it you know elicits those sort of emotions and it's just sort of words on a page but you can take people on this up and down roller coaster ride of you know of adventure funny heartbreaking those kinds of things are there many books that you tend to really like to get into and enjoy reading most of the time yeah, I, I love stories that move me, you know, like um, I think I, I read uh, generally, you know, looking for, for something that makes me, um, you know, makes me cry, you know, and, uh, and makes me feel, you know, I think that's, that's the most enjoyable thing about reading, I think. But then there's what sinks in, you know, like uh, I find that um, compared to watching a do documentary or something, um, when I read, yeah, it seems to stay in my mind uh, much better. And then that's why I love writing too, you know, like um, I've, I've learned uh, as an advocate and a person that um, does quite a bit of public speaking now, um, it's a really great way to take what I've learned from reading and what I've learned from life um, and what I've felt. And then when you put it down on paper, when you write, um, you really, um, I don't know, put things in order in your mind um, and then are able to understand understand yourself and the world better you know and uh, i love it yeah i love reading and writing well i think that might be a beautiful note to end on thank you so much for joining us thomas thanks eve thanks elijah thank see you everybody thank you Yo. bye